Howard Wolfing is a name that ought to be familiar. He was thanked in the Minor Threat discography CD, and so I retained a dim awareness of the name from my early teens. I came across it again in the late 90s in the review section of Your Flesh magazine. It was something of a revelation. Who is this guy, I wondered. Is he serious? In classic Meltzer Bangs fashion, Howard's reviews mess with you, mixing majestic flourishes with deliciously obnoxious Meltzerisms and digressions. He has an instantly identifiable style that goads and delights and enlightens. Howard's CV is impressive. He's written for Forced Exposure, Cream, Village Voice, Your Flesh, Spin, and Boston Rock. In the late 70s, early 80s, he published the DC fanzines D-Scenes and Discords, and was a prominent booster of that city's rich music scene. Notable bands he's played in include Slicky Boys, Half Japanese, and Nurses. In the 80s, Howard fell into the publicity end of things, first at Gem Records and later at Columbia. Today, Howard owns and operates Howlin' Wolf Media, a boutique PR outfit with clients as diverse as The Feelies, Swans, John Hassel, and Mike Watt. Much like a Howard Wolfing review, this interview is approximately 90 minutes in length, unpredictable, and riveting as all get out. Enjoy! Can you remember the first piece of music writing that you were paid for, Howard? That I was paid for? Uh, yes, it was a concert review of Howling Wolf at Max's Kansas City by The Village Voice. And when would this have been? Well, the fact that it was Howling Wolf playing clearly a long fucking time ago. Um, that's, that's, a, that's a good question. I'm guessing the early 70s sometime. Were you in New York at that point? Were you in D.C.? Uh, I believe at that point, it's most likely that I was in college, because that's when I started going to Max's Kansas City on a regular basis, because uh, for reasons that I've never been able to discern, the booking agent would comp me to go there all the time. So I went there all the time, saw a lot of amazing shows that very few people would care about, uh, but that I you know, was pretty astounded by, you know, things like Richie Havens playing with his acapella doo-wop group, for which very, very few people came out for. There was a, a glam band called The Brats. And then I saw other stuff there that people would probably recognize, like uh, Big Star, Wayne County, well, Jane County, when Jane was performing as Wayne County, uh, Iggy and the Stooges, but that Actually, it was the label that let me in for that one. And uh, and John Martin, who played in the middle of a, of a horrible blizzard. And uh, somehow we came up from New Brunswick, and there's this horrible blizzard, and there were eight people in the audience. And John Martin said, well, you know, I can play two sets, or I could play one long set. What would you like? And everyone said, like, do, do what pleases you. And he played a very long set. It was solo and it was, um, it was some next level stuff because he was making use of loop pedals and things like that in ways that, you know, were way ahead of the way ahead of the time. So he was like setting up percussion things by tapping on the body of his guitar and that would, and loop that and that would be the percussion track. And then he would like, strum thumb things and that would be the rhythm track and then he would solo over that it was it's pretty astounding to watch that's sick yeah it was so you're in college at this point do you have aspirations to write about music as like a vocation or is it more something fun you kind of fell into at one point when i was in high school i meant it 
to be my meant it to be my career. It never was my career. <laughs> Is it anybody's career? You'd have to ask people who uh, subsist on that. But no, I when I was in high school, that's what I wanted to do. Who was influencing you? Who who made you in high school want to pursue rock writing as a career? Largely, it was the staff of uh, Cream Magazine, you know, especially Lester Bangs, who was at that point a big hero of mine, and also Richard Melter, Meltzer, who I later came to realize was the inspiration for Lester. You know, certainly I also appreciated people like Robert Christigau, who approached it from a very, very different stance than, say, you know, Meltzer or Bangs, but it was still very impressive. In Rolling Stone, I think John Mendelssohn stuck out as a writer of note. Those would be the main people. I read a lot, but those are the ones that really sort of stuck out. It's interesting. Some people who would claim like Meltzer or Bangs as an influence would probably say, Christigau, forget it. No interest. But I've, I've been reading your writing for a couple decades in Forced Exposure and Your Flesh and other places. I think your writing strikes a good balance. It has sort of the basic aims of music journalism, which is like Christigau sort of approach, like I owe the reader, I owe this record and musician something. I need to talk about the music in 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 a way and, and explain what it's about. But you also mess with the reader a little bit and you have fun with style in that Meltzer kind of bangs approach. Is that was that something sort of self-conscious or something you recognize in your own writing? I don't know that it was self-conscious to to any great degree. I was just basically a style sponge and having read a lot, you know, I soaked it all up. And certainly particular things predominate, but, you know, earlier on, you know, there, there was no conscious thought of what the heck I was doing. When I started writing for the Washington Post, that had to shift because that was uh, a different readership and there were actual editorial demands being made. At that point, I, I did start to think, you know, how can I communicate with this readership especially when I'm writing about things that I don't like at all. When you're writing for a major daily, you take what assignments come through, especially when you're just a, you know, a minor freelancer. So, you know, I covered a lot of mainstream things that I did not really connect with at that point in time. And I really felt that just being snotty really was doing a disservice to the audience. And so I just, at points like that, said, well, I'll just be descriptive. I won't editorialize. I won't make value judgments. I'll just describe what I'm seeing here. And that will serve their purpose. It'll be true. And uh, I think that, you know, my writing after that reflects that that consciousness of like, let's let's talk about what it is that uh, that I'm experiencing with more or less sort of editorial uh, take on it, more or less, you know, value judgment. Do you think being a musician, where somebody like Bangs and Meltzer, they messed around with music creating, but they weren't musicians, it was just something fun to do for a lark. You actually did some serious music yourself. Do you think being a musician made you maybe more charitable towards music and gave you that 
sense of I, I owe something to the reader here. I owe something to the people who made this thing, even if it doesn't speak to me on an aesthetic level. Well, I think that my attitudes changed over time for a very long time. The music writing I approached as an art, you know, to have its own impact, you know, to be a stylistic statement and to, you know, create an emotional response in people. At the few times that I, I go back and look at earlier writing, I just feel like I was an incredible snot bag, just <laughs> just saying crap to get a rise out of people. And, uh, you know, I think it's well written, but, you know, information wise, it's uh, it's it was incredibly shallow. But, you know, I was doing the best I could. It's not like I went to writing classes and someone was sitting down saying, like, this is incredibly shallow. It's like I was. You know, I was being praised and I got recognition for being very, very flashy and very snotty. And, you know, often I wrote for local audiences. So I was getting sort of direct feedback from people and it encouraged me to be flashy. And it's very easy to be snotty, to say things that are, you know, sensational and, you know, impact people. You know, it's, it's harder to write more descriptive more analytical stuff and be flashy. And, and frankly, that to me, that was one of the interesting things that I came to appreciate, I think, over the years, you know, going, looking back at my early idols, you know, reading Meltzer and Bangs. I mean, Bangs at a certain point took that Meltzer thing and added a level of compassion and a level of, of having it be more more analytical you know he sort of like brought some more stuff to it maybe he lost some of the edge you know that that Meltzer always has kept but that, to me it was a good trade-off yeah Banks did soften a little bit later in his life but yeah Meltzer never lost that you, you never can tell if he's serious or if, if the whole thing is a put on you have no idea what he thinks about a record you have no idea what he's talking about. I'll be fully honest. I don't understand most of what he's saying in the aesthetics of rock. It's a book that goes over my head. I can deal with his reviews and they're great, except when he's talking about his sex life. And then I, I just close the thing. But the aesthetics of rock, I have, I, I'm one of those guys who wishes that he, he did more straight reviews in his style. Yeah, that would have been nice. It didn't turn out that way. And maybe he left that then to a whole a whole generation of people who were influ influenced by him and, you know, brought, brought their own voices to it. And, you know, I think there, there was a phase probably in the late eighties and early nineties where, you know, there, there were a number of people like doing that, you know, Byron Coley, you know, being, being the superstar of that. But there, there, there was a whole publication. I forget what it was called. Take it or take that. Take it, yeah. Take it, and it was like the whole magazine was like that. It's like wow, and then a lot of forced exposure, you know, as well. It's like wow, it's like an entire publication based on on that aesthetic, that perspective, and you know that that style, or to a large degree. I haven't looked at those things in a very long time, but that's. My recollection. I want to get to forced exposure, but I, I want to talk a bit about some of these forgotten magazines from the 70s that you were writing for. 
Can you tell me a bit about Zoo World? You wrote for them in the early 70s. I don't really know a thing about them, but I know you wrote for them. I know Meltzer did some writing for them as well, too. What's Zoo World's story? Well, I came to Zoo World because when I was trying to uh, start, you know, having a career as a writer per se, you know, getting something in the Village Voice, that was pretty encouraging. I'm like, well, so someone likes this stuff. Maybe this could work. And so I just started, you know, cold calling magazines I was coming across. And actually what I came across was a magazine called Phonograph Record, whose editors were and writers, I think, included people like Greg Shaw, Ben Edmonds, and other folks whose names I can't remember. And I could be wrong that they were involved, but I think they were. And I contacted them, and they were like, uh, no thanks, but why don't you try Zoo World? <laughs> and I'm like, okay. And they were based in uh, Miami, I believe it was, somewhere in Florida. I sent them a piece. I think it was on... Uh, Cans Ege Bamiazi, and they ran it. They ran a couple other things. Actually, you know, when you look at the people who ran, wrote for them, it did include John Tiven, who after that, you know, would seek out Alex Chilton and sort of jumpstart his uh, solo career. And Tiven would be writing about things like Sparks and Big Star. And yeah, it was, it was a cool magazine. And actually, you know, many years later, you know, the editor there, Arthur Levy, wound up at Columbia Records. I somehow tracked him down. I forget how exactly. And, you know, asked him if he could help me get a job there. And uh, he said, no. <laughs> and I said, <laughs> I said, but, but, you know, would you give me a reference? And he goes, yeah. And I'm like, okay. And uh, I got the job. At this time in the 70s, you were in D.C., Howard? Uh, I moved to Washington, D.C. upon graduation from college. And so that would have been pretty sure 1975. So what was the motivation for moving to D.C.? Uh, very simply that a woman that I was going out with in college after seeing a movie called The Paper Chase about life in, um, in uh, law school said, so do you still want to go to law school? Because that was my track. I wound up with a double major in history and English literature that, that I really wasn't trying, looking to do. I just took classes, but wound up that way. I guess I took, yeah, I did take the LSATs, they called them. And, you know, had good scores on the first go around and had all these offers from law schools. And she basically said, do you really want to go to law school? I'm like, yeah, not really. Go, well, what do you want to do? I'm like, well, I like to be a rock writer. She goes, well, you know, let's get married. We'll move to DC and I'll support you and you could be a rock writer. And that seemed like a good deal to me. That's, that's what I did. So tell me about the scene in DC. What was going on in the mid seventies there? Any standout bands that you can remember? Well, when I first moved to DC, I was actually pretty upset because one of the last things that happened when I was in college is that they, someone booked a show at a local community theater in New Brunswick for some rock and roll poet lady. And I was bamboozled into interviewing this poet lady and interviewed her. And she was like really, really cool. You know, she was from Jersey and she was into the Velvet Underground and into the Rolling Stones and seemed like very cool. And I, you know, saw the show and it was just 
a real sort of paradigm shift because she kind of effortlessly moved from like, you know, gritty rock to poetry to girl group stuff. And it just kind of flowed. And the sense of, wow, the possibilities that were there in the world, like suddenly everything seemed possible in the world. And that that indeed was Patti Smith, who had a single out <clears throat> that she put out on her own label, and that was it. And so there was nothing to prepare me for it. And suddenly I realized that uh, the teaching assistant in my um, film class, we, we would get into fights during class all the time about rock and roll. Don't ask me how that happened, but it happened on a regular basis. He said, rock is dead. I said, you're stupid. You know, no, it isn't. What about, you know, the New York Dolls? And what about Roy Wood? And what about Todd Rundgren? And what about the MC5? And, and he was like, you know, he sort of led on like, well, you know, I've got this one friend. He's got this really cool band and he's got this cool girlfriend. And, you know, you should come to New York and see them if you believe in all this stuff. And I realized sort of like years later that he was talking about television with Richard Hell. And, but yeah, it's like suddenly I'm moving away from like the New York area and like New York was becoming interesting. And I get to DC and there was nothing like that. You know, it was all cover bands or people who were like looking to be stadium bands, sort of post glitter groups like Stars and Bucks and stuff like that. And uh, it was like nothing. But, you know, we got to town. And of course, the first thing I do is start looking for record stores, because in those days, that was kind of what the internet and social media was. You know, it was a place you would find your tribe, kind of walked around the area. We're living in the just just outside of the DuPont Circle area. And, you know, found some place called Record I think it was called Record and Tape Limited was its name at that time. And, you know, I go there a couple times and get comfortable. So first thing I do is say like, well, um, so um, do you guys like, you know, take records and trade and stuff like that? Because I was already writing for people and I was already getting promos in the mail. And this black dude perks up and goes like, uh, like, why are you asking? Are you a writer or something? I'm like, well, yeah, sort of. <laughs> and it, it was a, a guy named Gordon Fletcher who wrote for Cream. He's kind of forgotten now, but at that time he was a pretty, pretty prominent and cocky writer. And, you know, at that particular moment in time, one of the rare black rockers that was out there. And he was managing a band called Pentagram. I was hanging out with him then because, like, here's someone I could talk to. And one day he calls up and says, like, hey, are you free tonight? Because we're, we're going to a punk club in D.C. I'm like, a punk club? Oh, my God, I can't believe that. Because I figured I moved away from that. And that was, that was the end of it. And we went to this place called The Keg on Wisconsin Avenue, uh, north of Georgetown, and saw... I'm pretty sure it was a band called, it was a punk band called Overkill, different from the metal band called Overkill that came along a couple of years later. And a group called the Slicky Boys. And uh, I, I was pretty stoked. I'm like, well, this is pretty cool. So, wow. So there's something like punk rock in DC. 
except Overkill promptly broke up because they went to college in various places. And the Slicky Boys broke up. And then either I was advertising, because you did that in those days, you would, you would, you would uh, go into classifieds, take out a classified, saying you're looking to be in a band, or you'd look for people who are looking for people to be in bands. But I you know, came up with these guys who said they were interested in like uh, Roxy Music and the New York Dolls and Garage Rock. You know, we, we started, you know, rehearsing mainly covers in like a row house that the guitar player was rehabbing. So he was living there for free while he rehabbed it. Went up calling that band a look. So the Slicky Boys actually had not broken up promptly. And they were supposed to get a... Someone set them up for a, um, a residency at the keg. Then they broke up. So the guy who was kind of managing them, you know, there's not a lot of choices out there comes along and says like, well, you want to take it over. You want to take over this residency. You know, you'll play punk night at the keg, which is like, you know, some horrible weeknight. We're like, okay. And so we did. I don't remember how long we did it, but it was for a while, for months, maybe a year, something like that. A lot of people who went up in bands after that all came to that night. You eventually became a slicky boy yourself. When did all that happen? It's a lead singer. I believe it was the lead singer of this band, The Look, quit. And we got a female lead singer in for, you know, for like one show and that fell apart. And we had a band meeting and, you know, it's a long time ago. But I seem to recall saying something like, yeah, we have to stop doing covers and we need to do more original material. I think we had one song that I'd written. I said, you know, we need more. That's what we should should be doing. We should sound like Sparks, which seemed like at that time seemed like a great idea. And I think no one else bought into that idea. So that that band dissolved. But before we dissolved, the folks from the Slicky Boys invited us to play on sessions. This gets so arcane and all this is incredibly obscure. Sessions to play with guys, a pair of brothers named the Grubergers. And they were friends with this guy, Kenny Highland, who was in the Gizmos, who some would argue was one of the first American punk bands to put out a record. And it, they pretty much were. Were the first I came across. I'm like, so way far back. And Kenny Highland wound up joining the Marines, so he was in the D.C. area. So we, you know, recorded this album somewhere with, you know, this floating batch of people. The Slicky Boys, The Look, The Gruberger Brothers, Kenny Highland. And, you know, sort of after The Look fell apart, you know, I then knew the Slicky Boys and they invited me on board very graciously. And so I played for them, played with them for a while. I guess some things on a live record we made. And then there was one EP we made. And then I moved to Arlington. Well, they lived like more like in Bethesda which at that time seemed like it was a million miles away. Uh, though it wasn't, it's probably like an hour and a half away. But, but it's like, oh, yeah, I can't do this. This is too far to travel. You know, came up with my own nonsense. But, you know, it was, a, it was an amicable parting. It's just like they, they were just too far away for me to like make rehearsals and stuff. So your own nonsense, would your own nonsense be the nurses at that point? This will sound goofy, but first I was trying to just be a writer-producer. Mm-hmm. So I figured this would be a better idea. Then I don't have to actually play out and, you know, I'll just be behind the scenes. You know, I did some work 
or had some discussions with an all-female punk band called the Pinups, but, uh, you know, just didn't come together for whatever reasons. It was all very casual. You know, there's no money in it. We're all just doing this because it was something fun to do. And uh, yes, then put together the nurses, which went through a lot of morphing very quickly because I was just planning on being the bass player, but we could never find a singer. So I just gave up and started singing. Well, it worked out well. You guys are great. I've got the discography, which came out 20 years ago. It's really good. It holds up. It's just really strong, kind of gutsy, punky pop stuff. Uh, you know, for the time and knowing the resources we are working with, I, I we did a good job and, you know, I'm happy with it. At some point, you started working at a record store called Yesterday and Today Records, which was owned by the late Skip Groff, who produced some of those classic early Discord bands. What was that experience like? Well, because I've been a record store geek from you know fairly early age checking out new record stores and sort of making the rounds was just part of part of my life and anytime you would hear through the grapevine that there was a new store you'd go check it out so there was a place called hit and run which i think was in bethesda or somewhere in that area you know somewhere in one of the northern uh, suburbs of dc so you know i went there and that was Skip and a guy named Howie, who were partners. And it was a really cool store. They had import singles. They had collectible albums, which basically meant things that were cut out and out of print that people started seeing value in. So, you know, they were tended to be pricey. And at a certain point, those two split up. And that was amicable because, you know, I know from, you know, just being part of that scene that they were always in contact and they were, you know, always on the phone and sharing tips and they're always friends. And, you know, Skip opened up his new store in this nasty little strip mall in Rockville. And I remember going up there to check it out before, before it had opened, you know, so got there and knocked on the door and Skip was in there and we're talking just saying hi. And he immediately put me to work and said like, well, you know, you want to work for me? I'm like, sure. Because, well, you could start by cutting the labels off these Stooges albums and repricing them. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, but we're cutting, I forget if it was like 10 or $20 labels off them and repricing them to $4.99. And I'm like, this guy's kind of cool. So he's taking the price down. He's not raising them. He's bringing it down. And of course, I immediately like bought, bought a copy. I'm like, oh, cool. Copied the first Stooges album for like five bucks. Damn. So yeah, uh, initially I, I worked for him on weekends because by that time I had a son. I was a stay-at-home dad for three years. And then when uh, when I broke up with my wife, my son's mother, you know, sort of my, my first job was working for Skip full-time. And I did that for... Hard, hard to say. A year, two years, three years. It seemed like a lot went on, and it's sometimes hard to imagine how 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 much went on in such a short space of time, and how much stuff got achieved. But uh, yeah, working for Skip was a was a lot of fun. You know, it was like record geek heaven. You know, he was very knowledgeable. There was a lot of stuff he acquired and sold as cheaply as possible. 
And I'd spend a lot of downtime basically going through like the 25 cent bins on the floor of singles and walking out with like armfuls of these things just because, oh, syndicate of sound. Great. 25 cents. Cool. No brainer. No brainer. I mean, well, it was kind of a brainer because you had to know who the syndicate of sound was, you know, in 1978, (laughs) which, you know, this was knowledge that spread within the culture. And then these high school kids start showing up and they, they were clearly influenced by English punk because they were kind of wearing that kind of gear, either that was store bought or that they were contriving, you know, they were, they, they were, they were cool kids. You know, they they were fun to be around. They were inquisitive and, you know, they had their own things that they were, they were thinking about and interested in. And, you know, those guys wound up being uh, the people who would form like the teen idols and SOA. So it was, uh, you know, Henry Rollins and Ian McKay and Jeff Nelson and, you know, all those folks. At this point, you're also starting to publish your own fanzines, Howard. So D-scenes and discords. And you were covering everything that was happening in D.C., including this burgeoning punk hardcore movement. You're a slightly older guy with more history and like traditional rock and different kinds of music. How did they regard you as an older, presumably non-straight edge guy with wider musical tastes? You'd have to ask them. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, pretty much right from the start, I mean, none of those guys had really narrow tastes. I mean, I remember when like Ian came in one day and he goes like, Howard, you know, you're a big fan of Funkadelic and stuff, right? And I'm like, oh, yeah. He goes, oh, well, there's like local DC bands that play that kind of music. I'm like, you're kidding me. Really? Like who? Like Trouble Funk. I'm like, Trouble Funk. Wow. Like, where do you find those records? Oh, you go down to F Street, you know, this store and that store. You know, those guys were big into ska. They were big into bands like The Police. You know, they're, they were pretty big into like pop bands and metal bands and stuff like that. They, they were pretty, yeah, they were pretty eclectic, you know, right from the start. You know, I remember when uh, Henry Rollins came back from, you know, when he had first joined Black Flag and he comes to the store and he comes in and goes to Skip, like, Skip, so what can you tell me about Nico? And Skip just goes, Henry, talk to Howard. Because I've I've been a a stone Velvet Underground fan for a very, very long time. So, you know, I was breaking it down for him and and things like that. So, yeah, like from really early on, Henry's like, you know, who's Nico? What's that about? You know, Ian's the one who's telling me about like about funk bands. There, There wasn't that great sense of divide there. I'm on the record of having been a little bit dubious about these guys. I mean, this whole generation, because when they started showing up in the store-bought English punk gear, it, it felt to me a little bit like juvenilia. And, you know, and it's a phase that everyone goes through. You know, everyone, like, finds their tribe, joins their tribe. We're all posers at some point. Yeah, I I sure was. And then it depends what you do do with it. And those guys... And, you know, a lot of them didn't do that, actually. You know, thinking back on it now, a lot of them weren't doing that. But, you know, very quickly, you know, clearly they knew their stuff and they started making, like, amazing, innovative music that, 
you could see what the roots were, but they were taking it in new places, which is all you can ask of people. How do you think that original DC punk scene, the early Discord's records, how do they hold up against other regions' punk, say like LA punk? Okay, well, so you're talking about the hardcore scene or the punk scene that preceded it? Yeah, I'd say more like like hardcore. I'm, I'm the wrong guy to ask because, you know, I was knee deep in that stuff. These were people, you know, I knew, was friendly with, and have a high regard for. To my prejudiced ears, like that's really sort of the high point of that particular artistic movement. You know, other people did good stuff and they had interesting strains of it. You know, certainly LA, when they started mixing their punk with roots music, did some, you know, really powerful original stuff. You know, it wasn't derivative derivative of, of anything. But, you know, you hear songs like, you know, like In My Eyes by Minor Threat. You're just, it, they just took it someplace else. And, you know, it could be that other, well, you know, when you think about it, then you look at some of the bands like from Minneapolis, like Husker Du, who then brought a whole pop element to it, but without sounding like power pop. Mm-hmm. I mean, all sorts of people did interesting things that were in their own way, you know, as, as exciting, you know, when you sit down and get granular about it. It was good stuff. And the musicianship, I think, too. Like, it's it's overlooked. But if you listen to those Minor Threat albums, the musicianship, like every single one of them are crazy tight and they're playing at that ridiculous speed. Yeah, well, that that was the uh, the impact of Bad Brains, you know, who were like, you know, were like fusion jazz guys who then got into punk rock and they're like, okay, well, we're going to start playing this punk rock stuff because it's very exciting and we're really liking it. But, you know, they'd already honed their chops and they were also like, okay, if speed's part of it, we know how to do that too. So to like make this impossibly fast and impossibly precise thing is what I think, you know, they brought to the mix. And, you know, once you saw that, you know, you can't unsee that. You're like, okay, well, that's that's where the bar is. You know, in Bad Brains Live, you know, back in the day, that was some amazingly powerful, beautiful, intoxicating, influential music. So talking about your fanzines, Howard, so D-scenes and discords, you're publishing these these local papers, which are super DC-focused, but at the same time, you've got non-DC content. You've got contributors like Gerard Cosloy, Byron Coley, Calvin Johnson, and other guys who'd be big players in the 1980s musical underground. Was there a sense that something was afoot? You're talking about how forced exposure eventually assembled all these people who were writing in this like tight Meltzer style, but it seems like things were happening even before that. They were they were two different magazines. They didn't go on at the same time, and they had different, slightly different focuses. So DCs was meant to be about the DC scene. It was fully inspired by the original version of New York Rocker when Alan Betrock was the editor, which was strictly about New York bands with often New York bands writing about other New York bands where, you know, you'd have the guys in Blondie writing about the Atlantics, for instance. And, you know, clearly you look at this and it's like, okay, well, here's a cool magazine and their whole point is only writing about their own scene. So clearly they're not going to write about DC bands because they're writing about New York. So let's just adapt this idea and just write about DC bands. And so we did that. 
did that for a while. And at a certain point, we'd written about most of the DC bands. I, I guess we weren't at one of those points where every, everything turned over, which, of course, DC was famous for. The entire scene would explode and everyone would recombine with other other folks and there'd be a whole new generation of bands. So we kind of did, we did it as long as we could. And then it was like, felt we've really had sort of mined that and provided what service we could and decided to like open it up to start like looking at the national scene, looking at national scenes around the country. And that's why there were those scene reports in there. So you could start getting that communication going on. You know, before the internet and before social media, I mean, the network of fanzines, clubs, and mom-and-pop record stores, you know, was a really important communications web that was really, really tightly interconnected in ways that are kind of unfathomable now. And actually, I can't figure out how the fuck it worked, really. You know, you just, <laughs> you just know these you know, people. I guess it's because people made an effort. You know, you'd, you'd go some some other town... You know, visiting you know, visiting your parents, or for whatever reason, you know, go see a show somewhere that you couldn't see locally, and you'd get there early. You'd figure out where the record stores were. You'd go there. You'd buy the publications you'd never seen before. You'd bring them all home. You know, you'd study these things, and you know, you might write to these people. You know, to make connections with them. You know, all these people just you know, you knew all these people that way. You know, you were connected and, you know, that it, it led to a really sort of interesting cultural movement and and moment, you know, up to the point where Nirvana had their huge success, where you had a pretty thriving scene full of like small labels like Amphetamine Reptile, you know, strikes me as like a good example of one of those like really cool, totally indie labels. You know, there were indie distributors, there were these like deep indie labels you know, you had record stores like, you know, Yesterday and Today or or for Folk Jokopus, you know, in Minneapolis or Rhino Records, rather Ripped Records and these like little clubs, you know, that where there were these circuits and all the stuff was just this kind of like actively mutually supportive, you know, communications web. It felt like in some ways all of these things sort of came together, at least First Exposure brought a lot of important people together at that time. Is that fair to say? Maybe another question. How did you get sucked into the forced Exposure vortex? Uh, I don't remember. <laughs> this is, it just seemed like a natural, a natural thing because, again, there was this national communications web between bands, writers, fanzines, record stores. And a lot of people had multiple roles that they played, you know, in, in their towns. And, you know, people just sought each other out, you know, to find the other people that, you know, liked them. And, you know, there was like a lot of mutual appreciation going on. And uh, I think Byron just asked me one day. <laughs> I, think that, I think that was kind of it. Some of my favorite writing of yours happens in forced exposure. It seems like all these writers have that Meltzer influence, and there's that same kind of tight style, taking this music seriously, but also being kind of cavalier and, and jokey about it. 
um, but nobody sounds quite the same. Do you think forced exposure had something special going on? These are things that, you know, I have not really thought about that deeply or actively in a long time. But, you know, just viewing that whole time period, it felt like there was a natural evolution from people wanting to create their own cultural institutions just to amuse themselves and to please themselves and to promulgate their peculiar values with no expectation that it was ever going to pay off to, or be anything more than that. And it just kind of got more active and more successful at the levels it was aiming for, which was not mainstream acceptance, but just sort of growing the tribe. And, you know, the tribe got big enough that it could, you know, support publications that were, had that much, had that many pages. The, the bands were making enough money for what they were like, you know, looking at the money they were trying to make. The labels were making enough, the bands were making enough money to help support these, help support clubs. The clubs and the labels were making enough money that they could support the publications you know, there was a whole ecosystem that was developing and growing and becoming a, a pretty cool and viable cultural force that was self-sustaining. And I think that, you know, forced exposure was one of those manifestations of all that sort of maturing and getting a certain amount of cultural heft of the writers having spent enough time that they're acquiring skills, analytical skills, as well as stylistic skills. You know, there's support from readers who are like buying these things. And again, you know, the bands were able to tour, the labels were able to make enough money that they could sustain themselves and like, you know, put out more records. And, uh, you know, it reached a pretty cool point. What did you think of some of the non-musical coverage? Forced Exposure's agenda was also to expand by including creative writing by Meltzer, Mike Chira from The Swans, Lydia Lunch, do reviews of books and kind of transgressive videos and things like that. What did you think of that aspect? Because a lot of people are torn on that. Some people think that stuff holds up pretty well. Others think that's part of the sort of the weaker, one of the weaker aspects of that forced exposure, your flesh magazine scene. What are your thoughts looking back? Well, I think with something, with those elements, it's important to look at them in the cultural context of that time. And I would suggest that the films that were being made and reviewed, the books that were being written and reviewed, sit pretty comfortably with the music that was being made both you know in performance and on record and i would also suggest that they wind up being in concert with the writing styles i mean if Meltzer wants to wants to go out there you know saying some you know fairly talking about behavior that you know looking at it from a mature more mature standpoint is pretty heinous was an expression of the freedom that people were 
experimenting with. Do you think we've lost some of that freedom, the ability to be free and, and a bit childish and, and try things out and risk doing something stupid or offensive? You don't see that too much in, in the culture today. I don't know. From, from what I gather, that's uh, pretty much standard on TikTok, except for the offensive part. But even there, I, you know, I do hear these reports of uh, people in expensive white schools doing racially offensive stuff in their TikTok things. I certainly think that a lot of issues that were not being actively examined, let's say around 1990, need to be examined. That's only a, that's only a positive thing that people are really being conscious of these things and like how, you know, the impact, emotional impact that they have on people. You know, the sort of discourse of what is improving life changes over time. Everything changes over time. You know, at that point, it was important to people to be as free as they could and to be able to be offensive. And of course, offensive, you know, what that means changes all the time as to what's offensive. You know, but that that impulse to be able to upset people, you know, was, I think, an important thing for people to experiment with and learn how to use. And, you know, one hopes that what was learned gets used more mindfully and more selectively and more precisely now, you know, that we're looking at profound enemies and not easy, easy targets. So certainly if there, there's likely things that are, that are in there that if I look at it, if that was published in, I don't know, on, on Pitchfork, I'd, I'd, I'd find it kind of questionable. But I think the basic impulse was an important one for people to sort of unleash. And I'd like to think it gets used more adroitly and in more positive senses now. While all this is going on, you're working for Gem Records. Tell us about that. Yeah. I mean, Gem Records at a certain point was the preeminent rock import distributor in the United States. And, you know, I had been working at a record store in DuPont Circle called Melody Records. Skip and I had a falling out. And sometimes I'm just the wrong guy to say, do it my way or, or you know, hit it. We had a falling out over something that in the end is incredibly trifling. You know, I was laid off for a week and told to, like, think about my future at the store. And I knew the right answer was supposed to say like, yeah, I'll never do that again. And essentially it was, I let two other workers guard the store when I went across the highway to buy a hamburger. They were female workers. And I thought, yeah, this is safe because we're out in the middle of suburbia in this, you know, strip mall land. I'm going to be gone for 30, you know, like 20, 30 minutes in broad daylight. Yeah. He, you know, he didn't look at it that way. He was a little old fashioned, you know, very protective. And, you know, his impulse was very fatherly. But, you know, when I went home that day, walking down the street on the, you know, the block to the apartment I lived in, and I walked by a record store and it says help wanted. I was like, well, providential, providential. 
And yeah, so suddenly instead of having an hour commute by bus, you know, I could walk to work in five minutes. And, you know, so I was working there and they made me a buyer, which was cool. And, you know, one day I'm talking to, I, I became a, uh, a single parent. You know, I had broken up with uh, my wife and, you know, she had our son. I mean, this not being stuff that we were fighting over, you know, just like she had a good job. I didn't have a good job. At a certain point, she took off for Texas, chasing romance, left our son with her parents. At a certain point, her parents said, she's not coming back. You have to take him. And I was like, cool. Works for me. And they're like, yeah, yeah, next, like, in 30 days. <laughs> I'm like, okay. And, you know, I realized I needed to have a, a different um, income flowed than I did because I put together a living from playing in bands, working at this record store and, you know, writing for the daily paper in DC. But that basically meant I was working, you know, all day long. And I had to have one job that I came home to and then be a parent. And so I was talking to, um, you know, my salesperson at Gem Records and I'm like, Hey, do you need a sales guy? And they're like, no, but we need a publicist. And I'm like, what's a publicist? <laughs> Which is kind of funny because at that point, you know, I was writing for the Washington Post and and had never been contacted by one. It says something about publicists in those days. And he says, well, you know, you, you, you write stuff and you talk to writers. I'm like, well, all my friends are writers and I write stuff. I could do that. You know, I underpriced myself to the nth degree. So I got the job. And uh, went up working at Gem Records. And, uh, you know, it was in an industrial park in South Plainfield, New Jersey. You know, it was, it was kind of okay. It was interesting. The previous publicist was supposed to train me and never actually showed up. Or showed up one day to train me. And I basically said, like, or maybe came, came a couple days. I'm like, I just need to see your Rolodexes. I mean, that's really what I need here. And after like, you know, like a couple meetings of not doing it, he finally said like, here you are, Xerox them. I need this in two days. So I'm just pulling apart these Rolodexes, Xeroxing it all, and then having to hand copy it all and create my first Rolodexes, my first database as it were. And uh, otherwise he told me how I could steal records from them. <laughs> it's like, okay, well, I, that's really useful, but... Uh, Actually, it's a heck of an onboarding process there, man. Yeah, but I'm like, yeah, actually, I want to learn how to do this job. And I just kind of faked it. They would just come to me and say like, well, you know, why don't we have something in Billboard magazine? I'm like, uh, I'll take care of that. <laughs> I would, you know, pull out the white pages or call directory assistants and say like, hi, what's the phone number for Billboard magazine? And I would just cold call people all the time. It was fun. It was good. It was a it was a good gig. I mean, because in those days you would call up someone like uh, it was a writer at the New York Times named Robert Palmer, who oh, yeah. uh, who made movies and wrote books, and he wound up being one of the founders of Fat, Fat Possum Records. He was fun to talk to. You'd call him up, and he would just start yakking at you. Well, Howard, you the know, next time you see me, you know you're gonna have to bow down because I'm a rock star now. Really, Bob? Why is that? 
Well, I, st I was hanging out with the Rolling Stones, and little Stephen came in and said, "Hey, I want I want you to be on my my Sun City record." And I played clarinet because I just happened to have it with me, and I'm on that record. I was like, "Okay." And then you know we'd yak for twenty minutes, and he'd be like, "Okay, so like, what were you calling me about?" <laughs> and I tell him, and it was you know it was great. You know, these people were like really fun to talk to. You know, because we're talking the same language. You're we're music freaks, and we're talking about music. Got us excited. We are always looking to share things that the other guy might not know about, and uh, it was cool. You know. It was funny. At one point, Gem Records fired me because, you know, they had an economic downturn. They fired me and they fired me. And I'm like, I, I think I waited 10 minutes sitting there saying like, wow, I'm screwed now because I left D.C. to take this stupid job. And what am I going to do? You know, I don't know anyone up here. And so then, you know, I walked into the president's office and basically said, this is unacceptable. Firing me is unacceptable. You know, I destroyed my life to come here to this godforsaken state and work for this stupid company. This is unacceptable. And to his credit, because he could have just called the cops and had me like hauled out. He's like, uh, let me think about this. <laughs> I went back to my desk and, uh, you know, later that day, he called me and said like, okay, we're we're gonna give you a job in in the buying department, and you're gonna be their telex operator and do whatever else they tell you to, and you know, add, and 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 get a pay cut. And I'm like, okay, okay, uh, you know, I could deal with that. I'll work with that. And so I was the telex operator and doing filing, and yeah, I was pretty happy. I was like, okay, I'm cool with this. And one day they come in and say, like, well, you know, we've got this record coming out. You know, you need to get some coverage on it. Well, you, you know, you need to talk to my supervisor as to whether he can spare me or not. And they're like, uh, oh, okay. And, you know, my supervisor was like, yes, after you do this, you can do that. Like, okay. And they sort of gradually, like, would ask for more and more. And at a certain point, I'm like, this ain't happening. You gave me this job. You fired me as publicist. You put me in this in the buying department. That's my job. I'm happy with my job. You want me to work in this other thing? You need to rehire me, and I want to fucking raise because I'm happy where I am. I like being the telex operator. It's cool. I like typing, and they did. So back to PR. Back to PR. And obviously, you had a knack for it because you, at some point, moved up to Columbia Records. What was that transition? Well, Gem Records basically went belly up. And I think I was unemployed for two months or three months. And my second wife, through various things that are too complex to get into, was hanging out with these people who were producing music and videos for the karaoke trade in Japan. They wanted to start a label and I was introduced to them and I explained what I knew and what I did. And so they hired me to start a label for them. But they said, but we're not quite ready to start the label yet 
But so we want you to take over acquiring synchronization licensing for these videos. And I'm like, I can do that. I had no idea what the fuck they were talking about. (laughs) And so the guy, so the guy who was doing that for them trained me sort of, because by that point, even though he, he had set up the first indie film distribution company in, in America based in DC. And his brother was the ambassador to Japan. He'd become a crack addict. So he was pretty useless. In fact, I remember one time we came into the office, which was in an apartment. Let's say it was like First Avenue and like 23rd Street, maybe. I think it was something like that. Or maybe it was 29th Street, but an apartment. So we're, we're, we weren't really supposed to be doing business there, but we were. Come in there and he's like naked on a mattress with a lady that he had acquired the night before. And we're just like, dude, we're opening for business. Put your clothes on. Girls got to go. So he was the one who trained me, but uh, it, it wasn't that hard. It wasn't brain surgery. And uh, I did pretty well with it. And we were in debt. This company had gotten a big advance from the Japanese company to get these sync licenses. And they'd spent it all. And they hadn't gotten the licenses. So there was kind of a problem. But I, in fact, got all the licenses that we'd been paid for. And now we're like moving ahead. So like suddenly that part of the business started becoming really good. You know, we had, it it was fun because in the end, once I understood the system, one hour in the morning to talk to the New York publishers, one hour in the afternoon to talk to the LA publishers. And then I was done. So I got a friend of mine, this guy, Don Fleming, who was uh, in the Velvet Monkeys in those days. He's gone on to become a, um, a big archivist, organizing the archives for people like Lou Reed and George Harrison and stuff like that. And he produced stuff like Teenage Fan Club, Bandwagon-esque, and various other things. You know, and he was the tech guy. So we'd get in there and do our work. And once the work was done, we'd sit around and, like, you know, basically watch MTV. The rest of the day, MTV, weird Japanese porn, which was... Really weird. Things with sushi, octopus parts, and it's weird. Um, yeah, and it was like, it was pretty easy. And, and, some, and sometimes we'd have to move modern art around because the guy who owned the company was trying to establish himself as a, an art dealer. So we had weird things like, um, like a Warhol uh, electric chair, like in the back of a closet, or Basquiat's stacked up in another closet. And, you know, you get, you know, like, yeah, bring bring the Warhol to the main office, which was like two blocks away. So we'd be like walking down the street, you know, holding a, a Warhol. Pretty goofy. So it's fun. But at a certain point, I, I'm like looking around going like, eh, and there was, there, was, there was some drug use going on. You know, like once a week, some guy would say like, hey, I'm going to go and buy some Coke. Who want, you know, five bucks to do a line. I'm like, okay, here's my five bucks. Did a line of Coke once a week. I did it once a week because it. Never was that interesting to me. But uh, at a certain point, I felt like this business model cannot hold. It cannot hold. I need a different job. And uh, so I was reading some some trade magazine and there was like, oh, they're they're looking for, uh, you know, they're looking for an alternative promotions department at Columbia Records. And so, you know, I 
been in sporadic touch with my editor at Zoo World, who then was in charge of editorial at Columbia Records. And I said, hey, you know, I see there's a job opening here. You know, can you help me? He goes, well, they'll never hire you. I'm like, okay, would, would you recommend me anyway? He goes, yeah, I'll recommend you, but you, you won't get the job. I'm like, okay, I'm cool with that. And I got the job. As a matter of fact, they offered me the job and I turned it down because I said, you know, this is the money and you're going to have this much travel. And I said, I've got a son and that's too much of a pay cut. Thank you very much. I appreciate it, but I can't do this. And a week later, they called back and offered me the job again and like, you know, changed it. And the portfolio was like alternative rock? Yeah, I was the alternative publicist which was pretty weird because Columbia Records did not really have an alternative, much of an alternative roster at that point in time. It was like point dog pondering, towed the wet sprocket. But, you know, I was, I was kind of up for anything because, but yeah, so I took the job and I like working this stuff. I'm like, well, this is okay. You know, my boss would come to me and say like, there's a new public enemy record coming out and, you know, they're anti-white. No one really wants to work with them. What do you think? I'm like, oh, public enemy, you're kidding me. I love Public Enemy. Yeah, I can handle that. That's okay. Or they'd be like, oh, we're putting out a record by uh, the Senegalese singer, Yusuin Dur. You know, would you be interested in that? I'm like, sure. So like, basically, my role changed from number one, alternative meant alternative to all the mainstream stuff. So that wound up encompassing a lot of stuff. I mean, it would be foreign language stuff. It would be electronic music stuff. You know, at a certain point, I remember being called into a big meeting and they were looking to make a deal with this label called Rough House Records out of Philadelphia. They said like, okay, well, we're looking at this sign. There's a band called Cypress Hill and here's this cop song called Pigs. You know, what do you think about this? So they played Pigs and, you know, all these various people, you know, sales guys and distribution guys. This is like this is anti-cop and we can't do this and this is horrible. And, and for some reason, and I guess they, they knew, you know, I was a plant and they knew <laughs> what I was going to say, even though this is all sprung on me. But the president of the company goes, well, Howard, what do you think about this? You're making faces. I'm like, uh, I don't see how this is any different from like Jefferson Airplane saying up against the wall, motherfucker. You know, like, how's it different? You know, it's just protest music about, what these people's lives are like. like. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's just like Jefferson Airplane. It's like, so then I guess that was my role there, that I was the, the house weirdo. Anything that was going to, they figured was offensive to everybody. They called me and, well, what do you think about this? Like, and I would explain why I found it acceptable. And that's how I went up working with all these rap people, which was uh, not something I was like planning on, even though I, but at that point I was, you know, a very big rap fan. Do you think it's important to appreciate the musicians that you're working with when you're doing PR? Yeah, because what else are you doing then? Job of publicist, you know, it's it, it's quite varied because in some cases, what your job is basically to be the gatekeeper and to politely say no to people. And that's all your gig is. And sometimes basically you're just a gopher for people. You know, you're there to be on the ground. And like when all these people come up asking stuff of the artist, they ask you instead of the artist then you go in. And then there's people who are basically advocates for kinds of music and for particular artists. 
And that's the role I like to play. And so for that, you actually have to, you know, like the art and like the story and like the context and feel that it means something to the world, which could be about musicianship, or sometimes it's not. Sometimes the most awful musicians make the most exciting work. And you transition to Howling Wolf Media. So you're doing your own thing now. How is that different than Columbia? How is that working? On one hand, I choose the projects. You know, when you work for a major label, when when I was working at the company, sometimes you'd get your choice on stuff. They'd say like, well, you know, here's this and this. What do you feel about this? Sometimes they would just be like, you're working this. And in this case, you know, I'm choosing every single act that I work with for various reasons. Yeah, some, I'm not going to lie. Sometimes, uh, you know, it's monetary because this is it. Yeah, this is my income flow. There's, there's no other income flow. And sometimes things are slow. Do you have to hustle a lot? Yeah, you have to hustle a lot in a way. But in the end, I, I appreciate everything I work on. There's nothing that I felt like, oh, this is hideous and there's no way I'm going to do this. If it wasn't interesting to me, I just wouldn't do it. And I turned down a lot of acts. So, you know, that's the difference, number one. Number two, I tell the truth to everybody. I aim for total transparency. You know, a lot of times, you know, working at a major label, artists would run afoul of internal politics and suddenly their career was derailed and no one would ever explain to them. It's like, dude, you fucked this up. And so you need to apologize or you're, this is it. They say the wrong thing and bang, that was it. The end of their career. Or things would be done for weird political, interpolitical reasons. And artists didn't understand, you know, why their career was working the way it did. And it's just like, yeah, you weren't meant to set, you know, you weren't meant to succeed. You just got signed as a favor to someone. You know, that's the whole gig. Or, you know, there'd be sub-labels who would try to diversify what they did. And the label only wanted a particular part of what they did to be coming through the pipeline. So they would discourage and suppress other work that was being turned in. And they would discourage artists. And I vowed that since, you know, in the end, this is all on me. If I work or don't work, it's all on me. There's no one else that's going to suffer. That I would never lie to someone. I would only tell them the truth. You know, I spend a lot of time, you know, telling people like, you know, well, this is how I work and this is how it's going to go. And they're like, well, what do you guarantee? I'm like, nothing. I guarantee nothing. I guarantee that I will work for you as hard as I can and do my best. That's what I guarantee. I guarantee no results because I'd be lying if I did. And other people lie like that all the time. You know, that's, that's their business. That's their life. It's not mine. So that's a different, that's a different thing that I can tell the truth to everyone. I could be transparent to everyone. And that's a great liberating and scary feeling because some people want to be lied to. You know, some people don't want to know exactly what's going on. I get harsh with people sometimes. Today, someone was like, oh, I didn't like these reviews. I just saw in the the New Yorker pop matters and this thing. Yeah, someone I'm working with now, I'm just like, "Um, was your last release recorded in those, reviewed in those outlets? (laughs) It's like, dude. They're expecting you to influence the outcome and what people actually say. Yeah, well, I, I don't do that. I get people to pay attention, and then the music has to speak for itself. 
And likewise, people say, like, oh, you did a great job. You know, I can't believe you got that in there. It's like, you made the art, not me. The art got it in there, or your story got it in there. Yeah, there's skill to telling it right to the right person at the right time. There is skill to that. And being someone who's known for, for telling the truth. So when I talk to writers, they know I'm telling them the truth. I'm not messing with them. I'm not hyping them. Do you want to talk about Cream for a sec? Sure. Did you watch the Cream documentary? Uh, I did. What do you think? I was glad that all those people got to uh, got to be on the record while they were still alive. I mean, I thought that was great. You know, Cream Magazine is something that morphed over time. And it meant different things at different points in its career. You know, there was that point relatively early on where I think they really changed American culture. Not by overcoming American culture, by by planting seeds. You know, punk rock basically was a large degree people saying like, that's right. Why isn't there music like that? Let's make it. Let's make it. I mean, if you read the letters section of Old Cree magazines, and Andy Chernoff, before he was in the Dictators, wrote letters. Metal Mike Saunders, at, no, Metal Mike and... Uh, I forget his last name now. It was Metal Mike and Greg from the Andrew Samoans. Greg Turner. Greg Turner and Metal Mike Saunders. They wrote letters in there. Peter Loeffner. I mean, I mean it was pretty, pretty intense. I mean, it really changed a lot of people's like ways of looking at like at life and art. You know, to me, it was it was really inspirational. You know, I really wanted to be that, and I I wanted to work for them. At one point, I was pursuing it. I remember, you know, talking to some woman on the phone. I couldn't tell you now who it was, whether it was Jan, who who else here, someone else. I remember Ira Robbins interviewed me at Meltzer's old apartment somewhere in Greenwich Village. And finally, they're like, yeah, you know, if you want to have it, yeah, it's like, why don't you come and hang out here for, you know, a couple of weeks? Like, are you hiring me? Well, no, but, you know, just come out and hang out for a couple of weeks. It's like, what? <laughs> and I didn't. I didn't go out and hang out for a couple of weeks. So that didn't happen. Much thanks to Howard for his time and you for yours. If you do the Twitter thing, you can follow us at RockRitPod. Our next episode drops in two weeks and finds us back in Scotland. See you then.